Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Andrew Zerman. Welcome to our pilot episode of China, Hawaii, and you. We're very excited to tell you about this fascinating place in the East and how it's uh, the what's going on there affects us in the West and those of us in Hawaii. So today I've got a really, really uh, exciting guest that I've, I, I really, really cannot wait to hear what he's got to say. Um, um, now you, you want to give yourself an instruction, Tony? Oh, sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Andrew, for having me on. And uh, I assume most of your audience are North American, based yep. in Hawaii, by the sounds of it. Yep. So my apologies uh, in advance if they have trouble with my accent. I'm from New Zealand, so it's a bit of a funny uh, accent. Uh, the E's and the A's, New Zealand, bed, head. Um, but I will endeavor to speak clearly. And if you can't understand something I say, I will do my best um, corny American accent to, to say it again. <laughs> thank you for having me on. In terms of my background, um, uh, so I'm from New Zealand. I did my law degree in New Zealand. Um, I worked briefly in public policy for the government there. Then I moved into private practice, mostly in corporate uh, law litigation. Uh, but then soon after that, I decided to move to China for several reasons, uh, personal and professional. I moved to Beijing, where I did a Master of Laws at Peking University. Now, it was a Master of Laws, but the, the subject matter was not really related to law. It was more related to public policy, political economy, and Chinese foreign policy. Um, so that's what I studied there finished my master's and that was about six years ago. And for the last, uh, I moved uh, to Beijing six, uh, six years ago. Since graduation, I've spent the last three to four years working in the private sector in China, mostly in project management and doing uh, consultancy work on the side, focused mainly on uh, macro developments in China for clients based overseas. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a, a quick intro to my background and, and why you've got me here talking about, uh, talking about China. So the subject yes. for today, is a really, really mm. interesting um, th development that people have been hearing about. You know, the markets are going freaking crazy when people think mm. about uh, a lot of Chinese companies. They think about Alibaba losing half its value in a day. They think about, uh, you know, Tencent's supposed to be on, on like the chopping block next. But a really big thing that mm. has kind of made people think like, huh, I wonder why my portfolio is looking a bit lighter today is the sure. Evergrande crisis. And uh, sure. that's, yeah, that's our big topic for today. And a lot of people have drawn strange, uh, not strange, but really interesting comparisons to uh, the Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's and right. um, for those of you with maybe short memories, the Lehman Brothers was a massive financial institution that collapsed in 2008. And many economists today agree that that was really what kicked off the great financial recession of 2008. Um, so we'll get. And it was to, a trigger. That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll, oh, wait, we'll get to. Mm -hmm, we'll get to whether or not those comparisons are appropriate in in a minute, right? Yeah. I think to lay some background, the first thing that I want to talk yeah. about is, um, you know, when people, especially when when people think of communism or communist China, right? This is the reaction I got from right. my parents. Some people can't even believe that there's companies like this at all right no. some you know it, it's it's kind of a strange thing to it's kind of a strange thing to americans in the way that they hear about the term the word communism they can't really they, they think like how well how is it possible that you have these private companies that even had 300 billion dollars of debt that they could get into right how is it possible in a country like china so could you mm. tell us a little bit about how china has sort of 
from the original uh, from the original state in the Maoist era, kind of made this transition to where a company of this size being too big to fail was even conceivably allowed. Can you tell us about how that transition happened? I really like how you frame that question. You actually touched on a couple of main points there. So let me sort of uh, change my answer uh, to change the order of my answer because you touched on several main points there. So then hopefully there's a good framework because I think you touch on something really important here, which sometimes it's hard enough to understand a crisis in your own country, if it's a financial crisis or some sort of economic problem. If you're a sort of um, regular Joe or Jane or whatever, and you see you, you're, you're reading in the newspapers, there's this crisis. Sometimes that's difficult enough to understand in your own system, let alone in a completely different system in a different civilization, then it becomes complex. And so we need to have uh, an understanding of the system we're talking about. To quickly touch on your first point, China is uh, in name a communist country. Um, many people say that it's communist in name only. That is not exactly correct. I would say the best to, to use Western sort of language, it's a mixed economy currently. It was heavily socialized and nationalized during the Mao and early reform. There were liberalizations through the 80s and 90s. Large parts of the economy were liberalized, uh, but large parts of the economy were also not liberalized. Um, downstream industries, for example, um, the sort of industries that manufacture goods for export, that, that provide goods and services for, for households and consumers, the property market, which is what we'll be talking about today. And some of these downstream industries are, are quite liberalized. Um, their, their prices are set by the market, supply and demand. Um, there's capital that flows into them. But upstream industries, like the banks themselves, the financial um, sector itself, like uh, electricity production, like um, um, heavy industry, a lot of this is either completely state-owned and state-run or is heavily influenced or he heavily regulated to the point where it's ba basically de facto owned. It's a mixed economy and it's much more, it's much closer to a state intervention and central planning um, side of the mixed economy than laissez-faire sort of mixed economy. But in terms of how we got here, the first point you brought up was uh, this idea of uh, Lehman Brother moment in China or the Lehman Brother moment of the, of the East. And then so the first question is when we try and understand this issue and the background that led up to this issue, the first question is, is this a good analogy? And in some ways, it's a sort of a useful way to start the conceptualization when talking to a Western audience or an Anglophone audience like your audience. Um, but it can only go so far. When it comes to our analysis of the problem, using that analogy is not very useful at all. In fact, it can be counterproductive. So how is it similar to Lehman Brothers? Well, it's similar in that you have this very large company that um, became very over leveraged, that was acting in a very reckless manner. And now this company could be a trigger uh, for a, a larger either collapse or a sort of a, an economic crisis uh, whether in the region or internationally. So it's similar to Lehman's in that way, in that it's a, a large company, a trigger. It's also similar in the sense that there is uh, what is highly likely a speculative property bubble at play in the background. But that is where the similarities really end. And the reason why we don't really want to use Lehman's as a lens for examining Evergrande is because when we do that, what we do is we look at what caused the crisis um, with Lehman's uh, in the lead up to the 0809 crisis. And then we use that lens to, uh, to examine Evergrande. And if it doesn't fit um, the framework, then we come to the conclusion, oh, there's not a problem here. But that's not actually, um, that's not a good way of approaching it because the system here is different. The nature of the property market is different. The options that regulators have are different. 
Um, the question that regulators are faced with is different and the consequences for the Chinese economy and the global economy are different. Some people say, oh, um, X, Y, and Z led to the collapse of Lehman and the financial crisis. Let's look at the China example. There's no X, there's no Y, there's no Z, so there's no problem. But just because there's not X, Y, and Z doesn't mean there's not A, B, and C. Um, so that's what I'd say on that. In terms of how we got here, let's take a step back and I'll, I'll give your viewers a quick walk through um, the last 30 years and sort of how we got to this, this issue and then maybe talk about how I like to frame this crisis because it is a crisis and it does affect um, a lot of, it affects the Chinese and it could potentially affect the world, not just economically, but geopolitically. But it's important that we understand how it does that, right? So in the 1990s, um, reforms had been in place for at least a couple of decades. Um, Deng Xiaoping's uh, opening up reforms um, started in earnest after the death of Mao. Mao, of course, uh, was the leader of the country during a period of great um, upheaval. And uh, the economic system was very much Marxist-Leninist. It was one of um, state ownership. There were no entrepreneurs. There was no property ownership. Um, it, was, it was very much communist in the sense that I think many Americans think about communism. Um, the reforms were introduced. It was bumpy, but there was a lot of early success. In the 90s, um, there were the Dunway reforms. The Dunway were um, uh, sort of where people worked. And historically, these Dunway um, or these work units had provided housing for all workers. People had houses that were provided by the government. And uh, because it was provided by the government, there was a massive, massive shortage of housing. Um, if, you, if you look at housing, uh, if you if you want to look at housing in terms of what is demanded by consumers, there was all this pent up demand. So in the 90s, the government reformed this area and they liberalized the sector and they allowed people first, initially, the Dunway houses were privatized. And so people who were already living in them were given the opportunity to buy them at a very cheap rate. And this started the process of um, lots of millions and millions of households um, getting assets for the first time. And because this un, uh, unleashed a lot of pent up demand. Um, the prices of these houses went up very quickly. And so you had millions of people in the lucky cities where they were given the option to buy the houses, their wealth skyrocketed. And then they could use that wealth to actually consume. And then you had household consumption that kicked in. And this started a positive cycle, uh, a cycle uh, where you had uh, increase, uh, increases in household demand, but you also had an economy that was just just really needed capital and needed investment into infrastructure and needed to build um, cities and needed to build houses. So you had the this, this skyrocket uh, of um, the skyrocketing of prices and of, of activity. And we know the story, China grew very quickly. At that time, uh, from in the first 10 to 15 years since the reforms of the, of the housing market, um, many observers in the West, especially who were not China experts or were not trained in, in, in the Chinese system, they believed that what they were looking at was a massive bubble because the property prices had skyrocketed so quickly and to such, a, to such high levels. But what they didn't understand was that because they basically started from almost zero, there was so much pent up demand that those prices, even though they were skyrocketing, they were actually linked to fundamental demand. Uh, the, the fundamental demand was there for people to buy houses. And so the prices um, rose, buying houses was popular we'll unpack some of these ideas um shortly i just want to give a basic overview for your for your viewers um property prices were going up people were buying houses developers um were entering the market they saw a lot of money to be made and they were building houses now this went on for about 15 to 20 years now about 10 years ago 
um, for reasons we can discuss, we can unpack soon if you want. About 10 years ago, the price of houses at some point became detached from fundamental underlying demand and then entered into speculation territory. You, you saw the beginning of a speculative bubble. Well, we can talk again shortly why we believe that is and why the government believes there is a speculative bubble in the housing sector here. And once you had a speculative bubble, if you have sufficient moral hazard, um, that bubble can, can keep growing. And so for the last year, that bubble has been growing and the price has become increasingly detached from, that the price of housing has been increasingly, uh, increasingly detached from fundamental demand. And this is sort of like the definition of a bubble, right? The asset price is higher than what it really, what its intrinsic value is. So that's the first step. You've got a um, popular asset in China, property, it's been growing rapidly and fairly um, in a very stable manner because there was real demand. So people see prices go up, um, they buy houses. And for the last 10 years, though, it seems that we're looking at a situation where you have a speculative bubble. Um, the second thing is you have the entrance of these, um, uh, of these property developers, these big property developers. And because of a mixture of factors, property bubble, uh, uh, moral hazard, and the nature of the Chinese growth model, which if we have time, we can discuss as well, because this is really key understanding the crisis that Chinese policymakers face today in Beijing, the, the, the nature of the property bubble, um, the uh, property development industry grew very large and became incredibly over leveraged. So that's the second thing to understand. This, um, they've been growing for about the same amount of time as the property market generally, but this over leveraging has happened, has increased dramatically over the last 10 years, um, mostly in response to the massive stimulus package that Beijing unleashed after the the Lehman's crisis back in 08 and 09. So uh, that's sort of this an interesting time with the with the real Lehman's example there. Um, the third step is that regulators in about 2018 um, recognized that um, there was the, the bubble was uh, was an issue. You have financial risk. Um, there's a need to uh, transition the growth model. Um, property development is too large a percentage of, of, of GDP. And so this is very dangerous because if you have a turn, a turn down in the property market, this can have a, a huge effect on GDP growth. And this is, this is a, social, a wider social and political issue. Um, and so there was need to regulate the market. Um, and so um, regulators stepped in in 2008. And by the way, this was not just in the property sector as well. There was financial risk across, um, across the economy and other sectors, technology sector, um, some of the grey rhinos that we read about a few years ago, like H&A and Unbung and some of these. And so basically regulators in about 2018 made it harder for banks and other lenders to lend to certain companies. Now, this had an effect in some sectors. It had an effect in the technology sector to, to some extent, but some of those large grey rhinos like H&A, Baosheng Bank, some banks, provincial level banks, they got into trouble. The government had to step in and take over some of the obligations take some of the, the bad assets off their balance sheets and give them over to state-run enterprises. And they were sort of dealing with these issues on a case-by-case -case basis. But the property sector continued to grow. And there's several reasons why that happened, and we can discuss that as well. But the property sector continued to grow until 2020, when regulators basically um, said, okay, what we did in 2018 is not working. 2020 rolls along. We're not going to go after the, um, the lenders. We are going to put... Um, we're going to put regulators uh, regulations directly on these property development companies themselves. And so in 2020, August, September of 2020, Beijing introduced its three red lines. 
And its three red lines were basically three uh, ratios um, that property uh, developers, um, they had to they meet these ratios in terms of interest bearing debt as a percentage of the assets on their balance sheet. Um, this made it much harder for property developers to get um, to get the financing they needed. Actually, the first time I spoke on my on my on my show that I have, um, the first time I spoke about Evergrande was actually in September of 2020, over a year ago. Because at that time there was a leaked document where uh, a leader a leader from Evergrande had sent a private letter to the local government, I think in Canton or Guangdong. And um, the uh, and basically was saying, hey, if you don't let us um, if you don't let us uh, uh, list on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange um, and have access to more capital, um, we might not be able to meet our obligations. And this is going to lead to slowdown and social and political issues. So it was almost like a little bit of a threat. And it actually just shows the level of interaction you see between local government and some of these wealthy property developers. There's a lot of this what. In the West, we call crony capitalist sort of behavior, but that sort of leaked and it caused a bit of a, a bit of a stir. But it seems that the central government didn't blink, and they were like, "No, you have to meet these requirements, and no, you're not going to be listed uh, on the stock exchange at this point." Um, so the the situation con uh, continued. Evergrande not being not having access to cheap credit anymore, having difficulty with financing and um, getting funding for its operations. It was it was greatly overstretched. It was incredibly over leveraged. It had diversified in a poor and, and disorderly manner. So it brought up assets that weren't exactly good that fits for their business model. There wasn't much synergy. Um, uh, they were they were buying assets um, across the country and overseas and projects overseas. They were it looks like they may have been buying up land that was just not a very smart move. And they they their operations could only be met by having access to credit. And when that dried up, they couldn't meet their obligations. And that's where we are now. When they couldn't pay those bonds, uh, the, the, the payments that were due to bondholders, when they couldn't promise apartments being delivered on time for the over 1 million people that have purchased apartments off plans, when they couldn't pay billions of dollars owed to suppliers um, and uh, service suppliers and good suppliers who are providing a lot of the, um, the sort of like the the um the inputs for their property when all this happened um the government had to step in and that's what we're looking at now so i know that's a lot to sort of digest but we we need to digest it because it's so different the nature of the system and how we got here is so radically different to what we would see in a more open capitalist system um where a lot of things are very different mm. so we can we can unpack some of these points if you want because they're also under uh they're also important. But what I what I will also say while you're here, sorry, I've, I've sort of uh, no, uh, okay. uh, uh, commandeered the, this part of the interview. What, I, what I'll say straight away to your viewers is there's this question of, will there be a collapse? Will there be a financial crisis? And more importantly, now, is it going to affect me in the West? Sure. Well, if there's a financial crisis, yes, it will definitely affect you in the West. It will affect the entire world. Um, in the in the case of a financial crash, it would be sim uh, like a real bad one and, and massive economic um, a, a massive reduction in economic growth in China. This has two effects. the The financial contagion spilling overseas is less likely because the um, uh, because the, uh, the 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 capital market here is quite closed and the financial the banking system is quite closed off. So there's you don't have the same sort of contagion you saw, for example, in the U.S. 
with Lehman Brothers that quickly spread to Europe and other places because there was so much uh, like so much of the system are, are tightly intertwined. So you don't have that same financial contagion risk. But in the event of a, a crash in China and massive uh, reduction in economic growth and activity in China, because China consumes, for example, 50% of global commodities, if you're a commodity exporting nation um, like Australia or some of these Belt and Road countries, then that's going to have a huge impact on your economic system. And uh, so all these flow-on effects, just the, the, the simple flow-on effects of a the second largest economy in the world seeing reduction in growth will have economic consequences for the entire world. And that in of, in of itself, once countries uh, and systems overseas, which are more interconnected, see um, hits to their economic performance, this could, um, this could trigger something larger. Um, the, what you would see would likely be not as bad as um, the, uh, the crisis in the US in 08 and 09, simply because um, uh, the US uh, is the larger economy, it's larger than China. And uh, what drives global growth is, is, is some debate to this, but I think most economists agree, what, dry, drives, uh, what drives global growth is demand. Now, China sees a lot of growth, but a lot of that growth is selling to Americans because America has a lot of demand and American household consumption is much higher. It's like twice the size of Chinese consumption. So while you would take a hit, um, the US, uh, a crash in the US would be much more devastating to the world than one in China. So it probably would not be as bad as 08 and 09, except for the Chinese. It would be devastating to the Chinese, obviously, and to key trading partners. Now, in saying that, the question, do I think there's going to be a crash? My answer is probably not. I think that it is unlikely that there is going to be uh, a crash. Can I, can I butt in I here think, really, really quickly? Of course, so please, please. Would, would an Evergrande crash, so let, let's imagine an Evergrande uh, just completely defaults, right? How likely yeah. is that to, I understand it's not likely to bleed over into the rest of the world, right? But how likely no. is it to lead to a Chinese economic crash? Okay, so this is where I think it's useful to frame, uh, to talk about, because Evergrande is um, a symptom of a wider problem. There is a decision that policymakers have to make. And there's many aspects to this decision, but if we take a step back and really look at it, at it in its purest form. Oh, as an aside, I should probably, I think this goes without saying, your viewers probably know this. Evergrande, the, one of the reasons why Evergrande's a big deal is because it's so big. It has $300 billion of debt and um, the assets on its asset sheet are probably not worth as much as it says on the asset sheet. In fact, a lot of them are probably worth nothing. Um, that's why it's a big deal. It's huge. Yeah, I think it's that's amazing. actually, that, um, that's one of the big problems that people have in analyzing the situation, right? There's a lot of, like, a lot of weird speculation about, like, um, will they, will they, or won't they crash? And there's a lot of different things you can look at. But at the end of the day, um, corporations and especially, like, these kind of financial firms don't tend to open their books for the public, right? And so, sure. uh, for the most part, it seems like, especially when you're dealing with Chinese, Chinese financial giants, you're kind of firing in the dark whenever you uh, make these make these sort of forecasts. Sometimes, yes, that's the case, <laughs> and that's why it's actually. And, and you're right, you're absolutely right. And people have been stung. People were stung with like in coffee. People were stung with Didi. People were stung with um, and financial overseas. I'm talking about Wall Street bankers who had money in or planned to put money into some of these companies, and they were like Luckin Cup uh, Coffee, uh, which was last year. Uh, I think the when the, a lot of the fraud came out with Luckin Coffee, a, a lot of uh, banks and Wall Street lost a lot of money. I'm sure your viewers are not losing much sleep over 
uh, Wall Street bankers losing money. But um, you know, it's just a, a wider point about sometimes it's difficult to know the true value of um, uh, assets on balance sheets of these big companies. Um, but also, even if um, they were very accurate, if you're if a lot of those assets are property and you're in a speculative bubble environment, then they're even if it's one hundred percent accurate on paper. Um, the fact that it's in a bubble suggests they're overvalued at any rate. And in the event of a systemic collapse, then those pr those prices collapse as well, and then you cannot sell them. And then you have a fire sale, and it makes it even harder to, to get much for them, and you can't meet your obligations. The reason why um, I think it's unlikely that Evergrande is going to cause a what Now, Evergrande may be cut up, and and, um, and it's man some of its managers may be arrested. Um, Evergrande, I don't think... If you, if you have stock in Evergrande, I'm sorry to say, I hope you diversified because you're probably, it's probably not going to be saved. Yeah. Um, well, the Evergrande, this is, mm -hmm. sorry, sorry, I want to get one point in. What's really strange to me about the Evergrande crisis, right, is like what actually put it in the news is that, um, is that they, they were on the verge of diverting, of de defaulting on this massive bond. But if you take a look yeah. at the average Evergrande stock, right, it's like you, you, you reported this back in September 2020, but, and then I took just a look at the stock price, and it's been on the collapse for the last year. Yes, 100%. So people who own the stock knew what was going on. People knew from um, when you have a situation where there's a leaked letter where they basically say, hey, you need to give us cheap credit, otherwise it could cause, cause a collapse. If you see that and you own stock in that company, um, you probably want to get rid of that stock. It's yeah. not a good. It's not a good look. So Evergrande by itself, um, we need to sort of make sure it's a tree in a forest. We need to take a step back and look at the forest. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a it's a very big tree. It's a very over leveraged tree, um, definitely. Um, and it could uh, the what has happened with Evergrande and the sort of policy response that regulators will need to uh, use. In, in dealing with it could actually cause issues for the wider property sector. And that's important because it's so big. But what I'll say in terms of whether there's going to be a crash or not, um, Beijing has the fiscal space and it has the legal and economic tools to manage the Evergrande crisis. And in fact, like I said before, they sort of knew it was coming because they, they use these regulators, these regulations to basically slow them down. So regulators were expecting this to happen. Now, if it is mismanaged, uh, if it's mismanaged, it could trigger wider collapse. If regulators make mistakes, which there's a there's some people say that the Chinese government is super powerful and all knowing. It's not the case. It's like any other government. Mistakes can happen. Then perhaps you might have some sort of like systemic trigger that causes a wider collapse. If that happens. Um, I think it would stem from part of these efforts from regulators is to use market discipline for the better allocation of capital. And so what they want is for the market to price and risk more, uh, more accurately when lending money um, to different lenders in the, to, to different actors in the economy. They don't want it to be based on moral hazard. They don't want lenders to look at a company and go, it's too big to fail. It's supported by the government. I don't care if they've got really bad fundamentals. I'm just going to give them money because I'm going to get it back. That's what they want. They want more market discipline in the allocation of capital. Um, if the situation in terms of the rot under the floorboards was much is much more worse than regulators expected, then this could be a nasty shock. 
perhaps they expect maybe like uh, financing for for some industries it becomes harder by say like 10 percent but if it actually becomes harder by like 30 or 40 percent uh then that could cause some shock the other big wild card is the price of property in china and perhaps we can you know actually that that's one of the big things that i um i wanted to talk to you i really really wanted to talk to you about is um the price of property in, in China and kind of how it affect and how it affect, affect on the rest of the world because not a lot of people uh, in the West kind of fully understand the um, there's external factors to why it's important to buy a house in China. It's not just the the classic thought of like okay, well now if I'm if I'm paying my mortgage right, at least I'm building personal equity right. People don't necessarily have this financial calculus when they're buying a house in China. Look, of course they do right, but one you never really buy a house in China. You you there there's uh, seven year rental leases, and two the yeah. reason that you're buying the house more often than not is so that you can get married. It's like yes, that's a, right. So that's right. Right, but the thing you're is, absolutely right, Andrew. Yeah, we're we're. I really do want to jump into uh jump into that, but we're gonna have to take uh take a really really quick break and go, go bring this into a part two. Um, sure. before we uh before we let out, uh, I wanted to ask, do you, uh do you want to take a second to talk about how if people are really interested in what you have to say, where they can find you? Well, I have a small uh, you know, for years I did um, consulting on the side, but then I thought I really wanted. I felt there was a lack of a um of voices it's good to actually see voices like you to be honest that's wonderful but i thought there was a lack of uh, voices that made following china accessible and so i recently um started a youtube channel called china update china update it's quite small so if you search for it you need to go to the filter and filter for channel and then search china update and you should find my mug on the uh, on the logo <laughs> very excited to talk to you uh in in a in a part two and uh, for now, we're going to say we're going to say to our, our Cheers, listeners, mate. thank you very much for tuning in, and we hope to have Tony back in. Mm -hmm.